Hey everybody out there in the podcast hinterland. <clears throat> this is Jeremy Coleman here. I, I've got uh, a podcast that I'm kind of excited to put out this new episode here. It's actually uh, something that you guys should enjoy. I think it was a really good conversation uh, with a guy that I work with, you know, and it's, I, I think everybody at least should be excited that it's a, a podcast where they can hear somebody besides me talk. But uh, it's something that I've been working on for a while. It's going to be something that we try to do here and there. And then so uh, I'm, I'm actually lining up somebody else that I've worked with in the past uh, to uh, uh, come on here and, and have some talk about some discussions. But this, this first conversation here is about uh, physician burnout. Not necessarily a traditional topic probably for HIT, but if you've looked at anything around uh, physician burnout or, or doc burnout, then uh, you'll see that the... Uh, Probably the, the biggest culprit to a lot of the burnout factors is going to be the EHR, so that lends it to uh, a good health IT discussion, but there's a, we, we kind of go in a lot of different directions. So uh, let me talk a little bit about the uh, the guy that's going to help me uh, with this conversation. His name is Rahul Aguilar Agarwal. Uh, I, I just butcher names, I apologize. But uh, anyway, he is a super smart guy, works with me at uh, QVenice, where I currently work right now and uh, he is a trained physician from India and uh, has migrated or immigrated over to the San Francisco area for a while uh, just been, he's on a ton of boards he's he knows a lot about technology and patient care he has an MBA <clears throat> you know so it's just yeah you know, really awesome that I was able to, to get him to come on here and spend a little time out of his busy day to talk to me about something that I think is pretty interesting. So, and, and I think that this conversation, the conversation is, is interesting too, but uh, again, you know, would love the feedback, but I'm not going to delay this any longer than we have to, because it's a pretty good, con- pretty lengthy conversation. It may be a longer podcast than usual. And, uh, and, and so, I'm I'm just excited that you guys get a chance to listen to it. So I, I really think that uh, it's something you enjoy. But yeah, always let me know uh, what you think. Uh, again, the show has a uh, Twitter handle now. Jay takes on HIT. And uh, so give us a follow. Provide some feedback. Uh, let me know what you would like to hear. Uh, and so we'll, uh, we, we may do, you know, basically start taking requests. So anyway... Without further ado, here we go. Okay, so let's just jump right into it. Uh, once again, thanks for uh, Rahul for you uh, being willing to to kind of share uh, your your take uh, as far as we go. So, uh, I, get, I think the first thing that we want to do, since we're talking about physician burnout, is uh, really define it and kind of understand what we're talking about when we say burnout because I think in other industries or in other kind of areas burnout is something that that people feel maybe temporarily you know or or occasionally but I think this is I I, I don't know at least if this is a different definition or when we talk about physician burnout that's a fair consideration I, I think you're right uh, we usually think in uh, for burnout, we think in terms of I'm feeling burnt out, I need to go do something different, you might take a break, you come back, or you 
do something different for a little bit, but you come back with physician burnout. What I see and, and read about more is sort of the, I'm burning out to the point where I don't want to do this anymore. And therefore I'm going to take myself out of being a physician and do something different or retire. And, and, you know, my assumption is, or at least I see, especially within the health IT world, who's uh, littered, I'm not, not going to use the word littered, but it doesn't take much to find uh, somebody in the industry or in a health IT company that has an MD behind their name. Uh, you, you know, you obviously have an MD, but but through a di- different circumstance, I would, I, I would, I'm just going to say, but, um, you know, is is it that it because it's so easy for a physician to find employment outside of patient care that also adds to that? So if the question is, uh, why do we see as many physicians as we do in, in health IT companies or in other areas? I'd say the answer is less that it's easy for them to find employment and more that as part of your daily work as a physician, you are now deeply involved with health IT and people have different interests and different aptitudes. And for those of us uh, who've done that for a little bit, it turns out that this is interesting to me. In fact, it's more interesting to me than the, the joy I get from providing direct patient care. And so people switch. Um, I don't know that it's burnout driven necessarily. Often it's sort of a opportunity meets interest meets experience. Gotcha. So let me ask you this kind of a more contextual question is, is there's more literature around burnout or at least more articles printed around burnout. It's, it's more uh, something that you see than you did before, but I don't necessarily know if that's a, it's at the, if that's a function of, of technology, communication technology, social media versus the reality. I mean, if you look back kind of when you first got started doing physician administration type, type work, has burnout always been a concern? Is it getting worse? Kind of what's your, your perspective on that? Uh, I'd say physician burnout has It's always been part of the conversation, but uh, let's say about a decade ago, the the discussion was different. And I think, uh, especially for primary care before hospitalist medicine sort of became the norm, a lot of the burnout was around the the pressure of having to see patients during the day and take call and sort of be away on, on weekends and all the rest of it. And the discussion around burnout had to do more with with that balance of time between between work and family and personal interests. The last, I would say 10 years or so, the conversation of burnout has become more about how it's becoming harder and harder to see the number of patients you need to see every day while you're doing the documentation you need to do and meeting the regulatory requirements and doing the coordination. And frankly, as physicians have had to adopt EMRs, I think the general gestalt is that in most places it leads to a somewhere between 15 and 25% reduction in efficiency, that, that is sustained. I mean, that is just a lot of time in the day that, you know, now you have to make up elsewhere. So I think that's a good lead in to kind of, because this is a health IT podcast and we kind of look at things through a lens of health care IT's impact on, on healthcare. You know, it's, 
I don't think that you can read an article about either burnout or EHRs in general without the mention of each other. They seem to be tied at the hip to me where the EHR has has been created into this huge boogeyman. And and my question has always been, and and it's one I pose to you, so, you know, and it really may be fair or not, but whatever. If if the EHR, or let me ask it this way, how much worse is the overhead and headache of an EHR versus being 100% on paper and all the headaches and hassles that are different, but there's still some out there of dealing with a paper chart? Uh, So I think there's distinct overhead in dealing with an EMR and, and the headaches and the problems actually depend on whose perspective you take in the practice. If you're looking at it from a provider's perspective, I'd say an EMR is actually uh, often less efficient, especially if you didn't grow up uh, with an EMR and had to learn how to use one. I think it's less efficient. And, and part of that is uh, when you otherwise saw patients in a paper chart, you maybe made some hand notations, but a lot of it was dictation. And so you could rattle out what you needed to, the essentials, if you will, from the visit in a couple of minutes. It would get transcribed and show up in the chart and it would live there. Now they go through screen after screen after screen, sort of confirming, entering, copying and pasting. It does take more time. in theory, you have much more information available in real time. So I think that's an efficiency. So lab orders, lab results, imaging orders, consults from other providers, all of that is now available to you without having to look for them or wait for them. I mean, trending is not even a thought of. You can't even think about trending somebody's CMP results over five years on a paper chart. Uh, they, you can't trend them visually with providers do is scan through the lab reports and and compile them in their heads. And you're right. It's, uh, it's a poor substitute. You don't see it visually. You probably miss stuff. There's bias there. Uh, but visualiz- visualizing it graphically is probably much better in an AMR than in a paper job. Absolutely. And I would think the referral workflow is probably, although not perfect in the EHR, I mean, it's at least... And and I think technology has tried. Now, technology can't overcome bad workflows. Technology can't overcome people that want to hoard data and don't and don't want to play well with others. Right. But I think if you know, using the direct protocol, referral workflows have to be better than they were in the paper world. I think thoughtfully implemented, absolutely. I think that is one of the big promises and and really opportunities where EMRs have helped, which is it's much easier to request a referral or send out a referral or request a consult and provide the relevant background information that goes with it. Now, conversely, what's happening actually is information overload because it's so easy to send everything. The, The discernment and the distillation of what needs to go or come back has, has become worse. And so if you, when I work with cardiologists, what they do originally is if you got a, a referral, they would write out a, a consult letter and it was a one page elegant summary of everything that they, they considered and their plan. 
And now they'll, they'll basically have their visit notes and there might be a little bit of a, a consult note at the end of it, which just gets shared with the PCP. And so they don't necessarily have that quick one page exact summary, if you will, to understand what's being done for their patient. They actually have to trawl through uh, a lot of information that comes back. And yeah. there's pros and cons, uh, but I do think that in terms of coordinating care among different practices and the flow of information and the timely availability of information is far, far better. So let's take it a little uh, one step farther uh, from, the, from the EHR point of view. And, you know, this is something that gets thrown out a lot. And I don't necessarily know, I don't see technology companies throwing this out there. I see a lot of academics who may or may not have you know, a sure footing in reality, uh, but that doesn't stop anybody from stating their opinion. So let's just say, for instance, you have infinite money and and enough resources to bring something to market within a year. How much better or what impact could you make to a physician uh, in their day-to-day if you had this totally redesigned EHR that only cared about the, 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 the provider, you know, let's just say their nursing staff, you know, the, everything else was just, you know, incons- we don't even consider it. We want to make this thing, this widget, just with the physician in mind. And we totally redesigned it. We have budget is no, no, no thought. We can bring it to market in a year. What real impact would that make on the, on the day-to-day life of a, of a physician? That is a really interesting question. Um, I think we could make dramatic impact to the day-to-day life, right? So uh, just some, I haven't actually considered this carefully, but here are some sort of off the top of my head thoughts or ideas. For one, I'd want this EMR to ensure that every or any piece of data only gets entered once and that a physician would never have to re-enter data that's already available electronically within the system. It doesn't even have to be in, in my EMR. If it's available electronically, we should pull it. You may have to verify it, but you shouldn't have to re-enter uh, the same data over and over, which right now is a, big, is a big chunk of it. The second side I would eliminate, I think, is uh, any kind of uh, need to actually interact with the, with the keyboard physically. Right, so the more voice interactive we can make this, where a physician could actually talk to the EMR and have it listen and transcribe intelligently and follow along, the better that experience would be for the patient. In many ways, it's similar to how it used to be with the, with the dictation, but really what it does is it keeps the patient, the physician in, in contact with the patient and the distraction of having to navigate computer screens pretty much becomes almost non-existent. And you'll actually see this a lot with physicians that are less comfortable with EMR workflow. They spend so much time clacking away the keyboard and bouncing around and actually expressing their frustration during the visit that it just takes away from the experience and then just makes everybody nutty. <laughs> I would introduce a, a fair amount of sophistication on the, on the EMR actually pulling information that it knows I like to review for a particular patient or for a particular disease state, let's say. Uh, you know, there's 
certain things I like to look at. So you, you mentioned the visual, you know, graphing CMP over five years. Well, for a diabetic patient, I'm typically going to want to look at the A1Cs for, let's say, the last two years. And if it knows that this patient is diabetic and that every other time I was in this chart, I looked at the A1Cs for the last two years, just give me that up front. You know, don't make me go look for it. Uh, in fact, the EMR would intelligently provide sort of a, a little summary of the patient as I walk in to see them so that at a glance, I have everything I need to know and it positions me for what, what is going to happen in this visit. The second part after the visit is it would anticipate what I typically do at the end of the visit and sort of pre-populate a care plan. And I'm not sure if this isn't already happening somewhat. And I don't think it's ubiquitous, but I see it in pockets. Uh, again, uh, an intelligent care plan that's based both on guidelines and what I typically like to do both for patients like this one and for this particular patient. Uh, because, you know, asking me every time where you want me to send, where I should send your prescription, or do you like to do this, or do you, is this a doctor you want to see, is, is, is redundant. And I don't see why the EMR couldn't just prompt that. Three or four so here, I could go on and on, but we'll, we'll <laughs> so and here's the reason why I asked this question. And, and this, and, and I would like to get your your input on this. My feeling, and this is just you know my opinion, which this is entirely what this show is based on. So why stop now? Uh, is the EHR in ten years is probably going to be middleware. We're, we're, we're swinging away from this single vendor view of the world where, you know, this, this company that starts with an E and is a four-letter word right. controls, controls, right, right, in vain, and, and controls the workflows of so many people inside of an organization. I imagine with the use of these APIs that are, that are going to happen, we're not going to use the word fire, but their API-based interoperability that's, that's, that is going to happen would enable applications to be basically layered on top of the EHR to present a better individualized workflow for different actors inside the healthcare uh, ecosystem. So a physician could have an application geared much more towards them it doesn't have to meet the needs of doing all this other stuff that the EHR has to do. The, in the, the short story of this, the bullet down is the EHR has too much within their scope. And that's why it doesn't do a good job at anything because it's, because it's doing too much. Let the EHR be a repository and truly be the legal record. Capture all the decisions that get made and all the data <clears throat> that the person was looking at when they made that decision and let that be the legal record. But let that, that doesn't have to impact how these people do their job and how it flows through a visit and handles all of that. So that's just my, my opinion. I'd like to know kind of what you. Uh, I couldn't agree more actually. So you and I have never talked about this, but in the inpatient world that happens and as one of the reasons uh, I'm in, in health tech right now and, and at a startup is that as we implemented an EMR at, at my former facility, we did exactly that. We created a separate workflow environment for physicians 
that lived on top of the legal EMR with, with pipes going back and forth, but it was designed purely around provider workflow. And we didn't care about what nursing wanted to do or what PT wanted to see or how lab orders were. It was entirely around physician workflow. So I think in the, in the ambulatory setting, uh, I haven't really seen that as much yet, but in the inpatient setting, there are pockets of, uh, of that kind of a solution out there. Now, I'm not mentioning vendor names, but uh, <laughs> this, uh, this solution was actually quite elegant and got acquired by a, by a large healthcare a hospital company because they saw the value of, of having that. Yeah, and that's the other thing too, and, and we, we've kind of stepped away and we'll come back to the whole in, uh, physician burnout. But I think that that's something that you're starting to see now is really, I don't know whether it's a maturation of healthcare organizations, uh, an economic force, you know, and really it's, it's, I guess, goes to all things are cyclical, but a lot of development, let's go all the way back into the 70s. A lot of development in HIT happened at hospitals that had the wherewithal to hire programmers. And then it swung away in the 80s and then to the 90s of we don't want to be in the business of HIT. We're a hospital or we're a healthcare organization. And I think now because of the, the cloud and the Internet and a lot of things that are making it cheaper to do development APIs again, uh, hospitals and organizations now are giving up on uh, software companies to develop something what they need and they'll just say we're just going to go at this and do it on our own and there's there's VC money out there hospital organizations are becoming VCs which is venture capitalist if, if, if you're not aware uh, so there's a lot of money being thrown around out there to support custom development that really becomes these hospitals and when we talk about UPMC or other places are really becoming incubators for for startups and and you're going to see a lot of innovation I think come out of healthcare organizations that are going to be much more active in software development I mean is that is that what you're seeing uh, I, I am seeing it actually and, and really what happens is that innovation in health tech is often occurs within the provider setting and hospitals are figuring out that, hey, uh, we can actually build this and the, the wherewithal required to, to build and support this is smaller than it used to be because whether it's the cloud or access to external resources or what have you. So, so that's certainly a factor. But the other thing I believe anyway is that often health tech companies from the outside don't actually understand the bedside and clinical workflow. And so they try to solve problems without actually understanding how the solution fits within that clinical endpoint workflow at the bedside. And what hospitals are able to do is, is think very carefully about that end workflow and devise a solution that, uh, that fits, if you will. The, the flip side of this is that you, you don't want, and this is actually one of the causes of burnout, is you don't want providers or care teams to have to live in three or five or seven different systems or screens to provide the care they do. Ultimately, you really want them to live in, in a single environment where everything fits together and they don't have to go bouncing around looking for stuff. And again, hospitals, I think, 
with that API supported infrastructure could hopefully pull whatever this, let's say innovation is and its outputs and integrate them within either an EMR or if the EMR is middleware uh, in a layer that sits on top of the EMR where all these little things and the core data from the EMR is available sort of in one single front end. So let's let's kind of pick up let's go back to the to the physician burnout and let's let's step away from from even IT for just a second and let's look at some basic economic forces that could be uh, going into this. You know, one of the things I think that you know at least in the rural settings that we've known for we've dealt with for a long time is it's truly just a supply demand issue. And a lot of the burnout comes from too few providers for too many patients. And in a, so one of the things I've seen as a trend that's really stepped up in, in every environment, both urban and rural, is, is this mid-level. Whether you're talking about physician assistants or nurse practitioners uh, stepping in to fill the role of a lot of PCPs, family care, uh, to where uh, I don't – I think if you go to an urgent care, it's probably at this point a 50-50 shot – whether you're actually going to see somebody with an MD, it's, it may be more than 50% now. That'd be good to hear your perspective is kind of how, how what's the mix you think of the market between mid-levels and, and docs at that, um, at that PCP level, at that, at that not necessarily just well visit, but that sniffle and cough level. And then two, and, and to, to the second part of that question is, what's the impact on outcomes because you don't have somebody with that training at, at that, at that level. Uh, that is a large can of worms uh, right there. So <laughs> <laughs> um, let's, let's uh, take that one by one if we could. So I think you're seeing the trend is rising steadily as far as I recall from the data where the number of uh, nurse practitioners and, and physician assistants, which is a typical, sort of physician extenders or mid-levels, if you will, around the country are, are increasing rapidly. And, and indeed, uh, there's a couple of things driving that, I think. One is that, uh, yes, there's a shortage of physicians. Two, uh, it takes longer to train and get a physician ready for practice than it does to get uh, an NP or a PA out to market, if you will. So for a nurse practitioner, usually it's an RM that goes on to get an advanced degree a PA, I believe it's, it's four to five years of school and training. Uh, most physicians are at 10 years plus. Uh, so there's definitely, a, you can fill that need faster. The second uh, issue is that you really want providers to practice at the, at the highest level of their license, if you will. So as a physician, uh, yes, I can see the, the colds and sniffles and, and I can certainly be effective there, but does it have to be me? Or is there something uh, that can very easily or very effectively be treated by uh, nurse practitioners and PAs and I can focus on the truly complex patients, ensuring that the people that are practicing there are under my guidance. Now, so there are actually a lot of economic forces. Now, the reality is that the reimbursement for an NP or a PA, I believe, is 85% of what you get uh, as a provider, uh, unless you do something called incident two billing, which is, I think, beyond the scope of this podcast. <laughs> what that means, though, is that 
a PA or an NP doesn't cost as much as a physician, but the revenue that they can generate is pretty close. And so if you run a practice intelligently, the ability to offer access to, to more patients is far better if you have a team that's physician-led with a couple of uh, PAs or NPs working with them. Uh, in terms of quality and outcomes, I think as you know, it really depends on the practice environment. So there are certain state nurse practitioners are allowed, uh, well, are licensed to practice independently and don't have to be uh, associated or affiliated with the physician. Later, physician assistants are required to be supervised by physicians and therefore uh, require periodic chart review and, and evaluation of care plans, et cetera. A little uh, tighter supervision there. In specialty situations, it's found that when you train PAs to example, the outcomes are actually sometimes even better than what providers have or what physicians have. Um, in primary care practice, uh, I think my experience has been that if you have a well-run primary, primary care practice where extenders are part of a team and physicians are actively involved in the supervision of the care of patients on the panel, that actually works really well. And interestingly, patients prefer to be seen by nurse practitioners sometimes because they feel like they spend more time with them, they're more attentive, they're uh, sort of less brisk in their bedside manner, whether that's a perception or reality, I, I can't tell you. <laughs> but from a patient's perspective, uh, you think that they only want to be seen by a doctor, but the, the, the evidence is, and the experience is showing that they actually don't care as much. They just want care. So let me, as I, as I mentioned in the intro, you're a, you were a physician in, in India. How does this compare, contrast? Does burnout an issue in, in, in India? Is, do they have the same? I, I would imagine that the economic forces are different because it's a different economy. But, uh, you know, take that into account at some point. Is this an American phenomenon that we're, that we're having to solve here? I will admit I have a number of friends from from med school uh, that are physicians in India, and I don't really hear about burnout as much in India. Uh, when I pay attention to the the health literature, if you will, from India, burnout doesn't seem to be one of the big questions that come up. And, and there are definitely the economic forces, and the practice model is completely different. And so I think. India will eventually get there, but for now, I don't hear about it. Let me give you a couple of examples that illustrate this. Uh, so for example, in the US, you really, the rate per unit of service is largely fixed, uh, the average rate. And so the only way you get to maintain your income or make more money is by seeing the same or more patients. In India, it's much more of a fee-for-service uh, free market economy, if you will, where when you first start out in practice, you can start, you can charge a certain fee. And then as you get more established, your fees change. And for the most part, the fees are paid by patients directly. So you're not having to deal with as much uh, third-party reimbursement and contracting issues. Um, EMR adoption is patchy at best. And there's really no requirement that people use electronic medical records. So the, this whole burden of 
copious documentation and regulatory requirements, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, is much smaller uh, as a factor. Um, the overall administrative burden of running a practice, because you don't have these complex billing requirements and having to deal with third-party insurance and, and federal reporting and, and all the rest of it, much, much simpler. And so it, it seems like you know, a lot of the overhead, if you will, of being in the practice of medicine that we experience in the U.S., uh, isn't really available yet in India. Now, AMRs are getting traction. They are coming about. Uh, Third-party insurance does have a presence, but it's nothing like it is in the U.S. Uh, eventually, I think it might drift there, but I'm not hearing that at all in India right now. So I think from an economic standpoint, and, and as we get ready to, to wrap this up, my question is, is that <clears throat> do we need to look at changing the business model to a certain extent? I know that the ACOs and, and at-risk contracts are, are trying to do that to a certain extent. And certainly that's what fee for value over fee for service is, is trying to get, get at as well. But I think in, at a more fundamental rate, I, you know, basically being a primary care physician you know, and I guess anything other than, than the road, which is uh, radiology, ophthalmology, anesthesiology, and dermatology, is, you know, if you're not on that, that road band of, of physicians, they all complain about the economics of it. So is it uh, an, an issue in my mind of an ROI? Is, is it something where training needs to be simpler, cheaper, less to, to make the ROI better because I don't necessarily know how much more the system can take pushing the same money, you know, cutting up the money any different ways. I, I think the, the spending on healthcare is what it is. Now, if you can get, take some away from pharmaceuticals, that's, that's one thing, but I don't necessarily know that there's a bigger pot out there for physicians to grab at. So really you've got to, in my mind, the only way to look at this is to, to make it uh, cheaper somehow to be a physician. Well, that could be part of it. And, and truthfully, the issue may not be that it needs to be cheaper to be a physician. The trouble actually is that physicians in the U.S. make a lot of money. And it's not that the cost of training or the time invested in the training is uh, that much different, but it's, uh, as I said, what you expect to make as a certain specialty. So let's take those roads off the table, if you will. But if you take a, a cognitive specialty, let's say you're doing a residency in internal medicine, in family practice, or in pediatrics, the amount of time, energy, and effort invested is roughly the same, but the amount of money you expect to make in those specialties is, is quite different. And they're all primary care, but the amount of money you make is different. Pediatricians, by the way, being at the, at the bottom of that scale by as much as 30% in most markets, uh, which is a lot of difference, if you will. All that said, what physicians make in this country is still way, way more than what they make elsewhere. And so I think the issue is <laughs> as much of a, well, it cost me X dollars to become a physician 
but also that I expect to make as much uh, as this, as a, as a specialist, as a procedurist, as whatever. And therefore, now I've got to do everything I can to maintain my, my level of income or standard of living that I've come to expect. Um, that, I think, is, is a much, much trickier issue to deal with. And frankly, it's something that no one's really willing to talk about. But if you want to lower the cost of healthcare, you have to lower the cost of inputs, among other things. Pharmaceuticals is certainly one of them. But the other huge cost of inputs is actually the human element. And physicians are definitely a big chunk there. Right. And, you know, the funny thing to me is, is that everything that I see that's, that's trending out there, the care team around a patient, nobody's talking about making it smaller. Uh, whether you're talking about care managers, whether you're talking about, you know, patient advocates, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, whomever, dietitians are becoming a much larger part in, in a lot of different diagnoses. So, you know, <laughs> I, I agree. I just, I don't understand. I, and, and I think a lot of it is the, the American market because of how it is and, and you don't have this over, this centralized overlord um, like NHS is in Britain. Although in my estimation, I, I've never been a provider, obviously, but, but I got to think that CMS, I don't understand how they could be more powerful than they are. Um, you know, they may, they're NHS and everything but name as far as I'm concerned, uh, because I don't see, you know, the whole concierge um, thing. I think, you know, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I think it's starting to, to play itself out. I just don't think that there's, that's not what you're going to see take over the world. Um, I think, you know, consumerism is going to happen some way, but uh, it's, it's not going to happen through these people willing to shell out you know, a country club healthcare membership. So I think there'll be a small segment of the population that will do that, just like there is in, in England. You can choose to buy private insurance. You can choose to see a highly sweet position in the private market outside the NHS. But it's a, it's a really small fraction of the population, which is sort of what I think you're seeing in the U.S. Uh, to go back to your earlier point about the, the expansion of the care team, I completely agree. I mean, there's at least two forces driving it. One is you want the physician to focus on the things that they and only they can do. The second is that there's data around better outcomes, better care, et cetera. But at the end of the day, these are all inputs. And unless you are able to manage the total cost of the inputs for the care that's provided to the same number of patients, um, the cost of healthcare is not going to go down. And yeah, I th I ultimately, I think that the, that the nut to crack here is, I think ACOs in this, in this shared risk is, is a, a middle step, ultimately, away from fee-for-service. Um, and, and I'm ignorant, ultimately, too much about how NHS works. But, but I've, I've touted way back, and, and I guess my ignorance allows me to, that I really think that, that you ought to have a pot of money for a patient that goes to whoever their doctor is. I think that fee-for-service probably works for specialists to a certain extent, but you've got to have a gatekeeper that gets a different reimbursement model based on wellness and not, and not based on sickness. And so that drives those, that, that team of individuals to really maintain health uh, for a patient. And then they bring in these, these specialist experts 
to handle acute scenarios, but they're not, they don't maintain that relationship with a patient. And that, that probably is a too radical of a change to what we're doing um, right now. It probably, we probably have to have the shared risk middle step to get to something like that. That's fair. Honestly, what you're describing is the, is the fully capitated HMO with a PCP gatekeeper model. Right. Uh, and then, Except not the 1990s version where they just threw you out of the hospital because, uh, you know, whether you're well or not. Right. And so, you know, one of the largest health systems in the country is actually a pretty good example of something exactly like that. Uh, it starts with a K. Uh, <laughs> Found in California. That's right. They're, they're, so, they're somewhat permanent. That's exactly right. Uh, and, and they have a, a similar model. And, and yes, it is, uh, it is really successful. And, and this system as well went through that phase in the 90s where patients figured that it was, uh, it was inexpensive and that's why they signed up. But really, they chafed under the restrictions and weren't necessarily enamored with the, the coordination of care. But if you talk to patients now, what they'll talk about is actually, yes, it, it is cheaper, but it's really quite easy to get the care you need within the system. And they've slowly sort of worked the kinks out and, and made the coordination part of it better, made access better. The only time you face challenges is if you can't get what you need within the system and you want to go outside, then the the fight there is is pretty intense. But within Kind of like the VA. I, I think like the VA, yes. Uh, so actually, what you're describing is is completely viable. It just has to be done, uh, I think, with a light touch. And rather than acting in your own financial self-interest, which I think did happen some with the early HMOs, if it's still around the patient and, and trying to make sure you're doing what's best for the patient, I think that, that at least has a shot at success. And, and frankly, the NHS does it like that, where your what's called a GP uh, is right. your care provider where patients are assigned to them and they're really responsible for everything for that patient. And consultants, if you will, are actually attached to hospitals. And if a patient has to go to the hospital, then consultant gets involved. Otherwise, the, the, the GP has everything, including pharmacy. Yeah, great. All right. Well, hey, Raul, I, I, again, I appreciate you coming in and, and uh, offering your expertise and your opinion which is the most important part because that's what makes this whole show is uh, getting perspectives. So uh, I, I do appreciate it and, uh, and we'll wrap it up right here. Um, but uh, we, uh, and, uh, if, if, if I come up with another, another thought, uh, we may, we may have you back if that's, if that's agreeable to you. Well, so long as you want more opinion and less expertise, I'm more than happy. To <laughs> Great. All right. Well, I sure do appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Jeremy. This is fun. All right. Thanks again to Rahul for that great conversation. And guys, thank you for your time today and listening. And we hope to have other good conversations coming out as well as other uh, original just uh, Jeremy takes on IT around news stories that come out. So anyway, once again, thanks for your time. Thanks for your attention. Uh, and our time is up. And we, of course, thank you for yours.